Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On today's pod, takeaways from last week's clinical trials on Alzheimer's disease meeting, millions in R&D tax credit at risk for the UK's smaller biotechs, and maintaining momentum on the path to the post-pandemic world. Selena, we had late stage readouts at last week's 15th CTAD meeting in San Francisco on multiple late stage beta amyloid programs for most of the big players in Alzheimer's. Data from ESI was celebrated as a breakthrough by many. Data from Roche appeared to disappoint. You've been following all these programs closely for years now, I know. What were the key takeaways for you? Right. Yeah. So the big news, of course, was that Lacanamab met its endpoints. And there was a lot of excitement, I would say, a lot of congratulations throughout the whole conference on this anti-amyloid therapy being the first one that's definitively demonstrated a therapeutic benefit of lowering amyloid plaques in the brain. <laughs> what I thought was interesting is like at the same time, there were plenty of uh, wet blankets being thrown about. There is certainly different two different camps in terms of reactions to the data. So Thursday morning, there was a panel discussion to discuss all of the phase three results. Um, and there was an exchange in that panel that I think it really um, illustrates these two camps. So Maria Carrillo of the Alzheimer's Association, she kicked off that panel with a pretty emphatic speech about how this is a historic moment and everybody there at the conference is going to remember where they were on that day. And because of the lacanumab data, and then she starts repeating this mantra over and over, FDA was right. FDA was right. Not only is amyloid reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit, it does predict clinical benefit. And any drug that reduces amyloid by any mechanism should now be up for accelerated approval and moreover, it should be covered by CMS. Okay, well, <laughs> sitting in the audience, happens to be Chris Van Dyke. He's a Yale professor who was one of the principal investigators on the lacanumab trial. In fact, he was the person chosen to deliver the top line results from the trial at CTAD. And he gets up from his chair and he goes up to the microphone and says, um, so I'm uncomfortable with saying that the surrogacy of amyloid has been established, which was pretty powerful because of course, the Canamab is up for accelerated approval next month based on amyloid lowering. But there's a lot of discussion about this. Like, what do these results mean? Not just the Canamab, but the Roche data, data from a head-to-head -head trial of Denonimab and, and Adahelm. What do they mean about amyloid as a surrogate endpoint? And I think most people agree that there's really important questions that are unanswered. One, how much amyloid plaque reduction is enough? Two, the rate at which you'd get rid of it, the kinetics, are they critical? What do they need to be? And, and this is something Chris brought up many times in different actually parts of the conference, these antibodies are all different from each other in terms of the species of amyloid they bind to or what they bind to most preferably. And there are many 
aggregated forms of amyloid, right? And so if it's some species of soluble smaller aggregate, that's really the problem and not these insoluble plaques, which are what the PET scans show, then the PET scans are kind of just a surrogate for something else. And so it may very well be that based on the binding profile of an antibody, sometimes you're going to see a good correlation between plaque reduction and efficacy, and other times you may not because it's indirect. So basically what he's saying is that it's not true that if one of these drugs seems to work, that they're all going to work. But the question I would have is, is this as good as it gets, right? Because there's a lot of controversy over the extent of how clinically meaningful this is. So the question I have is, is there any reason to believe that giving these particular drugs, for example, at a different time or in a different dosage, or that other drugs that are related to them will have a bigger effect, the kind of effect that people really hope to get? Yeah, so the Roche drug, by the end of that trial, had halved the amount of amyloid plaque in the brain and led to 25 to 28% of patients being amyloid negative on their scan. And it was highly statistically significant. So it's not that the Roche antibody doesn't remove amyloid, it removes quite a lot of it, just not as much as they had hoped for and not as much as some of the other ones. So it kind of seems like you got to get rid of nearly all of it to have a modest clinical benefit. So one of the things that people pointed to quite often in the lecanemab presentation was a slide, a time to event slide, where it's pretty clear to see a one point change on their primary endpoint, the CDR sum of boxes, which is an 18 point scale. And where many people think, okay, one is maybe the minimum detectable change you might be able to think is meaningful, maybe. The delay in getting worse by one point on that scale with the drug was three months. Some people think that's clinically meaningful, others don't. But taking a step back, I mean, for me, I have to be honest, I find some of this response to it rather disappointing. I think the field has had some incredibly important results. And I think we can all say that clearing amyloid has some benefit in the disease, at least to some people. I find it disappointing that this field, which has just been split in half with really antagonistic camps of believers, we've talked about this in the past, still seems to be taking that kind of passionate and not very scientific approach or measured approach to it. So maybe I'm just, I don't know, a Pollyanna or, or, or whatever it is that I believe people should look a little bit higher. But I, I feel that they're not discussing the real nuances, because clearly it's nuanced. I mean, what you said, Steve, is, is correct. It's not like it works here. So, it, you know, you can extrapolate it to all situations. You also said it's a question of how good can it ever be. So I think most people in the amyloid field, even the strong believers, will accept that other mechanisms will come into play. But I still feel that there's too much evangelism around this and not enough kind of I guess, of the, of the hard, dispassionate analysis that Selena is providing. Well, if you, if you want to get into the gutter, okay, so the 800-pound gorilla in the room is going to be, <laughs> uh, how much is this going to cost, right? So all the people who are complaining about it and the people who are celebrating it are going to change their attitude about it dramatically based on the cost, right? If this comes out, if this is another Agihelm, you know, there's going to be a lot of consternation. If it comes out at a cost that people think reflects this uncertainty and this rather modest benefit, 
you know, then I think that it'll be possible to move on, you know, and to have the kind of dispassionate discussion that Simone is talking about. I don't think that's going to happen if the cost is such that that's all the people talk about. Well, Selena, I mean, tell us now what the next shoes to drop are. Well, Eli Lilly is going to report data from Denonimab early next year. But before that is the PDUFA date for Lacanimab's accelerated approval. The pharma intends to submit the full clarity AD findings, you know, sometime between then and the end of the first quarter, which is the end of its fiscal year, hoping to convert that quite quickly into a full approval in 2023, at which time we may or may not see CMS revise its NCD. Clean, I'm going to ask you a totally unfair question. Projecting forward like five years, where is amyloid in terms of surrogacy as a marker, as its relevance to, to drug development? It's going to take a while for this to shake out, but where do you think it's going to go? Well, there seems to be enough data. I mean, we'll know better, of course, after the Denonimab results, but to suggest that clearing you know, all of the plaques from the brain is relevant, has some modest slowing of decline. So once they sort out the details, and I don't want to say people aren't having a nuanced look at the data, they definitely are taking a nuanced look at the data. It's just, you know, Rosa's data became available to them just a matter of a couple of weeks before they didn't even have the PK data yet. So they weren't able to correlate amyloid reduction and benefit, for instance. But that work is ongoing. And I think once we have all of those data, we are going to have a better sense of how to appropriately use amyloid as a surrogate. But nobody thinks amyloid is the key to this disease. Even the people who evangelize it know that it's just a first step. So hopefully what we're going to see are combination approaches um, built on amyloid or totally different approaches that can address, say, protein misfolding globally, maybe through autophagy or chaperones or something, rather than this like one aggregated protein at a time kind of thing. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll learn about how to use amyloid as a surrogate. Well, we'll watch that. I, I do feel like we need a responsibility to patients and to manage their expectations. I can tell you that, you know, talking with my parents who are elderly last week, you know, they just wanted to know, is this really as great as they will say? My parents, by the way, I should add, are both very healthy right now. Thank goodness. But they, you know, their question is, how much should I believe what the newspapers are telling me? Is it really such a breakthrough? And, you know, I, I don't know whether we've created an expectation that amyloid therapies are really going to change the field now in a short term. And I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that in five, five years time, we'll know more, but I don't know that we'll have significantly more well, curve on this disease. There's changing the field and then there's changing the disease course for patients, right? I, I think getting some solid clinical wins and even a modest change of the course of disease brings a lot of momentum to the research, investment, things like that. It lowers the risk profile of working in Alzheimer's. This first therapy is not going to do much for patients. That's the way it is. But maybe it'll be a stepping stone to something else. All righty. Well, Simone, welcome back stateside. How are things in the motherland? For those who haven't picked it up from my accent and um, from uh, Jeff's curious comments, I was in the UK last week. <laughs> um, so there you go. 
the motherland for some of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is my home now, Jeff. Uh, you know, there we go. But anyway, uh, yeah, actually, things are pretty dismal globally in, in the UK right now. I think it's no surprise to anybody who's seen a newspaper, or at least one with anything like the Financial Times or whatever, that the economy is in pretty dire straits, and, and that is relevant. I just want to say one thing. I mean, a lot of people that I spoke to at all different kind of areas are very, very concerned about the NHS, which I think is also important for our field and lots of ways that we're going to continue to talk about throughout the year in, in addition to the NHS's ability to you know, deliver the drugs that the industry makes. But um, one thing that was particularly important and, and on people's minds in the biotech sector is that in the, the new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, he and Chancellor Jeremy Hunt in their autumn statement, which is a sort of mini budget or whatever, they are trying to get the nation's bank account in order, so to speak. And among the savings that they're trying to make, they changed the R&D tax credit. So they made some changes that are very relevant to, in particular, the biotech sector. And there's been a very favorable R&D tax credit that they are not completely removing, but altering, which for almost every biotech that I spoke to was a really, really big problem. I mean, the way that they're looking at it is removing this tax credit. Basically, you know, if they've got 18 months of runway, it's going to cut it down to 12 months of runway or 13 months of runway. I mean, this is a substantial change for them. Stephen Hansen has written a story with all the details in Biocentury, from Biocentury.com. Um, so, but this so, is a. So, yeah, so even, I mean, it seems to me that the big problem is, is that they're hitting exactly, they're hitting people when they're down, right? They're hitting the, the companies that actually need it the most, the small and medium sized companies. And they're saying to the big companies, yeah, you can keep it. And that's really the, from a policy standpoint, that's the exact opposite of what really should happen, right? Right. They, they've got this completely inside out. You're right. So what they've got is that larger revenue generating companies would see an increase in their R&D expenditure credits. But the smaller companies, SMEs, are basically going to have theirs cut in half. Now, just remembering this wasn't targeting the biotech sector. And I, I'm not going to comment on whether that makes sense in other sectors. But for biotech, where, you know, we don't need to talk about how you know, long the, the timelines are for drug development and how important the SME sector is. And I think it's just particularly important because the UK's biotech sector has really become, I would say, the third fastest growing for, you know, seed and series A companies, for example, after Boston, the Bay Area, third hottest rather than fastest growing. And that's because of a life science initiative that the government has put forward very successfully. I mean, that coupled with a few changes inside the UK. So they've got this burgeoning sector, which they've said is one of their pillars. And here they are, as you say, Steve, just cutting them, you know, at the knees, basically, at exactly the worst time possible, just when, you know, the economy is going down. Is this big enough scale, do you think, to change the trajectory of the sector? Well, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting question, because, you know, I've been following this, as you know, for a while. The beginning, it was like they were going strong and then Brexit came. Well, they weathered Brexit. Then, you know, I remember speaking to somebody, John Bell, saying, well, you know, what if the Woodford Empire collapsed? He says, yeah, that might be a problem years before Woodford collapsed. Woodford Empire collapsing, UK biotech sector weathered that. They weathered the pandemic. You could argue that they even did well out of the pandemic. 
I think they are en route to surviving this downturn, but hitting them when they're down in this way, do I think that the sector's strong enough to survive? Yeah, probably. But I think it's going to jeopardize a lot of companies that might otherwise have survived. So I, I think it's going to weaken it. Now, that said, the British Bio Industry Association, the, the UK version of Bio, for example, which is not, not quite as big, they are working hard to try and get the government to modify the tax relief scheme. And there is a certain window that that can still happen in. Uh, otherwise, it starts as of April. I think it comes in as of April. So there are a lot of people trying to wield a lot of pressure. And because life sciences is one of the pillars that they continue to say that they really want to see grow, I think there's a possibility that this isn't completely carved in stone. You know, you asked the relevant question, Steve, and I think the sector will probably be okay, but a lot of companies will be deeply hurt by this, might be set back, yeah. Simone, this isn't set in stone just yet, is it? Hail Mary time? Could something change? Yeah, so I'm not good enough really at what you call football to talk about Hail Marys, um, but we can talk about the World Cup if you like. Oh, always good. <laughs> but... The bill has had its second reading in the House of Commons. It has a, another reading and then it returns, I think, for a third reading. And I'm not exactly sure of the timing of that. Mm. Um, so there's somewhere between like around that third reading. So, so yeah, there are opportunities for this still to be modified. And, you know, I, I think that sort of raising it as an issue is really important. But I don't know how that's going to play out. All right. Well, uh, for those who don't know, Hail Mary is sort of a, a last second desperation pass in American football. And here's hoping something can happen. I know that I, uh, I just want to go back and say, let's I think we'd rather a Hail Mary than an own goal on this one. So yes. um, yeah. <laughs> I think we can leave it at that. The bear market, of course, has been grinding on for uh, far too long and companies of course, have been forced to make some tough choices on their pipelines. And who knows if this goes through, maybe UK biotechs are starting to look to take the clinical trials outside of the country. We'll just have to see. But something we are tracking, Stephen Hansen's story is up on our website, biocentury.com. All right, Steve, I'd like to bring you in now. Medical products regulators around the world are at an inflection point. Decisions they make now or don't make could determine whether COVID innovations persist or whether they uh, they fade away. Steve, you recently spoke with members of the Charles Forum about all of this. Before we get into those details, maybe you could enlighten us or those of us, including myself, who don't know. Uh, what is the Charles Forum? And uh, and uh, let's go from there. So, yeah, so it's really interesting. The Charles Forum brings the heads of regulatory from 14 multinational biopharma companies together really to, to talk about the big picture, what kind of changes and opportunities are out there to improve the way medicines are developed. It was started in 2018, but my story is the first time that members of the Charles Forum have publicly discussed their work. They've published several papers over the years, but they've never actually kind of talked to anybody about the fact that this, this group exists. They meet a couple of times a year. Their staffers meet once a month. 
during COVID, of course, they met more frequently to coordinate their kind of activities in response to, to COVID. I spoke with um, Sean Curtis, the head of regulatory at Merck, and Michelle Rohr, the head of regulatory at, at Roche Genentech. And one of the things I wrote is I think that most people think of regulation as something that slows innovation. But in fact, the dial can turn the other way. That became obvious in the pandemic when emergency use authorization and streamlined regulatory procedures cut at least a, a year from the time it takes for it took for vaccines to get into people's arms. But there's plenty of other examples of regulatory innovation really accelerating uh, medical product development, accelerated approval, made it possible to develop effective AIDS drugs. Um, the breakthrough drug designation has been putting wind in the sails of transformational therapies for some time. So the Charles Forum are really are these heads of regulatory at, at the multinational biopharmas to get together and think kind of big thoughts about what is it that the regulatory system, that regulators around the world and the companies that are regulated can do to make product development better and faster. And Steve, uh, we're expecting a white paper on navigating the gray zone. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, white and gray. Uh, it's um, it's a it's a it um, purple, I think. Right? <laughs> it's a paper that that the Charles Forum wrote, and again, it's called Navigating the Gray Zone, and it's quite interesting. It's about the opportunities and challenges in this kind of odd period that we're in now, right, where the acute phase of COVID seems to be over, but the new normal, whatever that's going to be, hasn't started yet. And the transition is going to be bumpy, right? It's not going to or, or lumpy. It's not going to be the same everywhere. And it's not going to be the same for, for every sector. So this paper says, look, there are opportunities to retain some of the regulatory policies that have helped everyone get through the pandemic. But there's also a chance that we could come through this less aligned and with drug development less efficient. And they say that's what would happen if regulators around the world take different and uncoordinated approaches to this transition from the pre-pandemic to the post-pandemic. And they give some examples if you want, we can talk about a few of them. So Steve, in your mind, what do you think is gonna be the biggest actual impact of this organization or of this gray zone paper, either of the two? Well, it's interesting. So I asked I asked Sean Curtis and Michelle Rohr, you know, how they view it. What's the role of this, this forum, right? And Michelle Rohr said, that she sees it as creating the ripples in the pond, you know, and um, Sean Curtis said he sees it as as sparking change, right? So they don't they don't view it as something as an organization that you know rolls up their sleeves and makes these things happen. They're they're taking the big picture and they're saying, you know, what are the things that need to happen? And because they've kind of got the strength of the the stature, right, of these big organizations behind them and people who have all of this real life experience in doing these things, there's some impetus just to the fact that they focus on something and call attention to it. I think that one of the most concrete things that could come out of the um, Navigating the Gray Zone paper is thought by regulators around the world about how they handle things like post-approval changes. So the paper goes into it in depth. The paper's on the website. People can read it. It's open access. Anybody can access it just by clicking on the link on our white paper tab and completing a free online registration. So you can get the details there. But basically, the idea is that regulators around the world have got different policies and different speeds that they act on requests that manufacturers have for post-approval changes. 
And by reducing the, the variance between what different regulators do around the world, they could dramatically improve drug development and they could prevent supply chain disruptions that happen when there are divergences between the way that different countries handle post-approval changes. That's, just, that's one example. So what, one last question. Steve, we've talked in the past about a cumulus synergy, which is a different setup that is also trying to create a bit of regulatory harmonization. Is there any interplay between these? Yeah. So, so the Charles Forum, actually, one of the papers that they published made the case for creating what became a cumulus synergy. And it made the case to regulators and it made the case to other companies. And in fact, then companies went out and have backed the, the creation of a cumulus synergy. We've talked about it on the podcast before. It's a nonprofit that's creating a cloud-based platform for companies and drug sponsors and regulators to interact with each other. It doesn't sound like such a big deal, but actually it is quite a big deal. And if if they accomplish what they've set out to do, they could make dramatic improvements in the way that products are, are reviewed and in the ability of regulators to coordinate and collaborate with each other. Actually, Steve, I want to say, say the opposite. I think these are incredibly important. And, you know, we talk a lot about access and creating global access to medicines, which is obviously partly a price, but not exclusively a price issue. And, you know, it's not even all in the company's hands. So the ability of regulators to just iron out a lot of the kinks and the issues that are barriers to getting products approved easily is really important. All right. And you'll find Steve's story up on our website early this week. And that's biocentry.com, along with Selena's CTAD pieces and Stephen's look at the UK R&D tax relief situation. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Kendall Square Orchestra's second concert of the season is December 14th. Head to kendallsquareorchestra.org for details. Thanks for tuning in. We will catch you next week.